I want us to, to focus this morning on the glory of God because I think that's, that's what God intends for us to focus on in all of life. And so I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Psalm 19. And we're taking still a little minor break from the book of Esther. We're going to jump back into the book of Esther next week, and then we're going to finish it off through the rest of summer. No more breaks from Esther after this. Uh, but this is, a, this is an incredibly important psalm. This psalm is written by King David. Uh, it was written as a song, um, as are all the, the psalms. Uh, this, this is Israel's songbook. And so just, I want you just to, to, to consider for a moment that that means that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ actually sung this psalm. And I think this psalm um, is particularly relevant for all of human history, but I think specifically it is relevant for our particular cultural moment. See, in a sense, in a sense, we are living in unprecedented times where humanity has rejected God and replaced him with self. Now, I know what you're thinking. Um, that's really the story of all of mankind from the fall onwards up to this day, and that's absolutely true but I think this truth is evident in some very stark and startling ways today. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, author Carl Truman says that our culture has become obsessed with what he calls, and he borrowed this term, expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, he says, is the kind of mantra or mark of our culture. And here's what he means by that. This idea is that each of us seeks to give expression to our inner lives. Expressive individualism is the idea that, that ultimately, at the end of the day, your happiness, your joy, your purpose, your meaning is found in expressing who you believe you are, and that is all determined by you, by your feelings, by your perception, and therefore, the goal of your life is simply to express outwardly how you feel yourself to be inwardly. And we see this in some really shocking ways in our culture. That's why today it's not uncommon to hear a, a biological boy or girl say that they were actually born with the wrong body. Inwardly they feel like a girl, though they are born outwardly and biologically a boy. And so they seek to express how they feel on the inside in ways on the outside that are different from their biological reality. Uh, in really interesting ways, this is evolving. Um, it's not uncommon for kids today to not only say they're, they're, not, they're a different gender or sex, uh, they're, they're, they're a different species altogether. So you actually have pockets. I, I don't know if this has happened in Canada. I was exposed to this in the, the U.S. Any of you heard of, of furries? It's a real thing. Where, where people, or where kids, excuse me, are going to school and pretending like they believe inside that they're cats or they're animals, and so the teachers are asking questions. Some of you are teachers, and I just, I, I'd be interested to know how you respond to this, but, but they're asking kids questions, and the kids are simply purring in response. In certain districts in the United States, um, they're actually petitioning to have litter boxes put in classes, which, uh, like, okay, I just figured that one out. I mean, we laugh, but, but you have to understand, this is a mark, again, of what Truman calls expressive individualism, where authenticity to inner feelings, 
rather than adherence to transcendent objective truths is becoming the norm. Humanity has become skilled in the art of self-creation and self-expression. You, according to our culture, must determine who you are and you must be true to who you are. Forget about what God says about who you are. You are the ultimate determiner of that truth. And you see, I think this simply aligns with what the Word of God says. You see, man's chief pursuit apart from God is to become a God, to kick God off his throne and to place self on the throne, to display our glory, not his glory. And that is a glory, again, that is determined and defined by us, not by him. That is the mantra of our culture, of our day and age. It is the zeitgeist that we are living in. But God's chief pursuit of man, listen, is to make us more like him. He has made us to reflect his glory like the moon that has no light of its own but simply reflects or refracts the light of the sun. So too humanity was designed by God to simply reflect and refract the glory of God to all of creation. And here in Psalm 19, David, he wants to detach us from this societal and cultural idea of the glory of self, and instead he wants to tether us back to the glory of God. He wants to move us away from expressive individualism and towards a deeper identity that is actually grounded in the very glory of God that we as human beings were created to see, to know, and to reflect And the dominant theme of this psalm is that God has revealed himself and his glory. Now, the simple way to understand God's glory is that it is the the essence of all that God is. It is God's self-expression. So to see God's glory, to be exposed to God's glory, is to be exposed to God himself. The Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, begins by asking this question, what is the chief end of man? And it answers the question um, in this way, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so again, I, I just want you to see how relevant this psalm is for us today. It places the glory of God at the forefront of all things, and then it calls us in a sense to pursue that glory as the chief end of our life, as the chief purpose of our life. It must be the chief pursuit in our life. David, who again writes this psalm, let's read it together. He begins, the, soup, the, the subtitle here is to the choir master, a psalm of David, and it says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor their words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We're going to break this psalm up into a, a three points. Really, this psalm is broken up into two broad bucket ideas. Again, the glory of God being the dominant theme of this psalm, but you can, you can look at it like this. We're first given the book of the world to see God's glory, and then we're given the book of the word to see God's glory. But I want to split it up into three points, um, and we're going to first uh, look up and see the glory of God, look up and declare his glory. Secondly, we're going to look down and we're going to delight in his glory. And then third, we're going to look in and desire his glory. If it's helpful, let me give you just a a second way to, to view this. We're going to look up to the sky. We're going to look down to the scripture. And then, and only then, are we going to look in to the self. First, I want us to see that my chief pursuit in life must be to look up and declare his glory. That's what the first six verses really lay out for us. Theologians call this God's general revelation or natural revelation or theology. And that is simply this, that that the world actually puts on display the glory of God. The, the, The psalmist David begins with that very idea. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time in these first six verses, so we're going to move through it very quickly. But the very first verse reminds us again of this this idea of general revelation. And what what the psalmist does is take a macro look at creation, Not not a micro look, not like a scientist through a microscope, but in a macro sense, he wants us to see what all people at all times in all places can simply look up and acknowledge and realize He looks at the bigger picture of creation because that is what all people have been exposed to. And and his idea here is that it's obvious, it's overt, and it's actually in one sense undeniable that the heavens do declare the glory of God. The heavens and the sun are the focal point here of all of our existence. That's what he begins to focus on. There are some really startling parallels in these first six verses with Genesis chapter one. We don't have time to get into it right now. But he is, in a sense, mapping out a part of the creation story. Every human being sees, feels the reality of the power and glory of the sun 
which puts God's power and glory on full display. And look at verse two. He wants us to see that this happens every day and every night. There's not a moment in time where this does not occur. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. It's like a fountain that that never stops or a river that's always flowing. And then verse three, he gives us this, this paradox This paradox to make us stop and think. You see, there's an utterance without words. And it's undeniable. It's heard or seen, so to speak, by all. Creation speaks, but it's inaudible. The testimony of God is seen in the glory of his world. It's a testimony, again, that transcends time and ethnicity and geography. It doesn't matter where you are on this globe or when you've existed on this globe. The cry goes out, the glory of God, the glory of God, the glory of God. And the sun, which he's already introduced, now begins to dominate the scene, and we, we see some astounding things that are stated here about the sun. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing that's hidden from its heat. The sun is not the result of some random accident, but has been positioned perfectly by the creator. And the sun, by the way, is the source of all life on earth. Without the sun, there is no life. He gives us two metaphors here, again, for us to to understand how creation displays the glory of God. The first one is like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Now, in the ancient world, it was common practice for uh, the groomsmen of the groom to meet him at his tent or his chamber on his wedding day. And all his buddies would would come to his tent and, and out he would come bursting from his chambers. You can imagine the scene. It's his wedding day. He's waiting for this day. He's longing to go see his bride. And so he bursts out of his tent with this sort of splendor and majesty and joy on his face. So too, the sun bursts forth with strength and beauty, blazing glory as it crests over the horizon every single day. And then he uses this other metaphor to really nail this point home. He says it's like a strong man who runs his course with joy. Uh, I, I recently watched the, the World Track and Field Championships, um, and uh, it was on a couple weeks ago. And I, I remember watching, tuning in to watch the men's 100-meter finals. And, and many of you, you've seen this, so I'll describe it, but you know what I'm talking about. You've got these men who are lined up across the lanes, and, and the, these are, are men, they're, they're, they're giant men, right? They're, they're just like, they're, they're, they're muscles upon muscles, ginormous legs. And, and, and you know, I mean, these guys are so big, they're just ripped and strong. I mean, their ears have muscles. <laughs> Never skip ear day. But they, they stand on the line and they beat their chest and they slap their legs and they, they get into the blocks and they burst forward with strength and power and exuberance and they run with such joy. That is the expression of what they've been training for, what they've been made for. So to the sun bursts forth every day displaying the glory and power and might of the God who created all things. 
splendor and strength are unmistakable. There's nothing that's hidden from its heat. Did you catch that? Do you see what he's done? he's, He's tapped into the senses of humanity, what we can see, what we can hear, the the inaudible voice that goes forward, and what we can feel. You see, everywhere around us, we are surrounded by the glory of God. God has left nothing, nothing to be questioned. It points back to him, every part of it. And the point is that this revelation of God in his world is universal. It's so clear. It's so obvious. It's so unmistakable. You say, well, what's the point? Uh, We we just came back. um, My family and I, we drove uh, to Kansas City last week. Uh, We got back about midnight on Friday. And uh, there's some cultural differences, like you know, between Canada and the United States. And uh, one of the big ones we noticed is that as as you cross the border, we went through Windsor and crossed into Detroit, Michigan, but almost immediately, one of the cultural distinct distinctions that you, you kind of see are um, advertisements. America is land of the free and home of the billboards. It's unbelievable. It's just like, it's, it's, it is blatant, right? Like if some of you cry, you've driven through the U.S., you see this. It's like giant billboards. They're like five times the size of the billboards that we have in Canada. And it's just they're, they're just like they're just one after another. They're relentless, right? Like McDonald's in two miles, McDonald's in 1.9 miles, McDonald's in 1.8 miles. Like, listen, they're so brazen, blatant, in your face. If you miss the exit, it's nobody's fault but your own. <laughs> but the revelation of God is designed the same way. It's like a giant billboard, one after another after another. It's so brazen, so blatant, so in your face that if you miss what it's pointing you towards, it's nobody's fault but your own. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul does in Romans 1, 18 through 20. He actually gives us a bit of a commentary. We'll read it here. A commentary on I think, in one sense, creation, and and perhaps even specifically here, Psalm 19. But listen to what he says. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now here's just, now pause. Some of you were with us in Romans when we went through this, this verse, but I want to remind you, this word suppress is a really powerful word and it kind of brings forward this image. Let me give you this illustration. It's like a, a coiled spring, okay? So, so, so here's creation. It's like a giant coiled spring, but humanity in their sin and unrighteousness is leaning on this spring with all their might, trying to squish it back down, but the pressure is immense and it will not stop pressing back against humanity no matter how hard they press. Look what he goes on to say. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. It's not hidden it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And then here's the kicker right here. So they are without excuse. It's nobody's fault but their own. And you know what this means? This is a startling reality that we need to really pay attention to, okay? This means every one of us is going to die and stand before God. Every one of us. 
there is not going to be a single human being that stands in the presence of God as judge and can say to God, God, I didn't know you were real. I never knew you existed. Not one single person would be able to say, God, if I would have only known, if, if you would have only shown it to me, God will say, you had every opportunity to look up and declare the glory of God. It was all around you. Everything I have created pointed to the reality of me. And it's increasingly important that we understand this passage in, in Romans 1. And I would encourage you as a Christian to familiarize yourself with it, especially in the day and age that we live in. Listen, in creation, God has actually given us adequate instruction of what we need to know in this life and in part the life to come. And as you think about what and who God has created, there is a clear indication of the creator's purpose in the things that have been made. Again, this is what theologians call natural theology or natural law. God has actually made himself known, and and the operations and purposes can be seen in what God has made. They can be clearly understood. There is an order in creation. This is being violated all over the place in our culture, in the, the, the sexual revolution. They are abandoning the order that God has put in place. And Paul actually goes on in Romans chapter 1 to talk about that and to show how how this is a clear sign that humanity has rejected God. They've abandoned the truth. How do we know that? Because they exchanged the glory of the the immortal God for the glory of mortal creatures. They exchange what is natural for what is unnatural. And what we need to be reminded of here is that the revelation of God in this world is sufficient to condemn all the world to hell. It leaves all of us without excuse. But I want you to see this, that while creation is sufficient to reveal God to the world, it is insufficient to redeem people from the world. We are all blind without divine intervention. And so, secondly, we must make it our chief pursuit to look down and delight in His glory. You see, what we need is not just general revelation in creation. We need special or specific revelation that comes in God's word. I want you to to kind of notice in these next verses, verse 7 all the way down to verse 9, we're given six statements about the scriptures, but I want you to see that, that this phrase is used six times. It's a very important one. If you mark your Bibles or highlight, I'd encourage you to, to maybe make note of this. It says this, of the Lord, of the Lord, six times, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. You say, why is that so important for us to understand? Because we need to understand that scripture is a divine book. It comes from God. He is its author. He is its source. All of scripture is God-breathed, and that means it is authoritative and sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. That has to be the starting point when you come to the scriptures. And that is our presupposition. We believe that this book right here was written by God. What we hold in our hands, what we sit under and hear every Sunday, what you open up and I hope read on a daily basis, it is God speaking to you. God wrote a book. 
And through it, we hear his voice and we hear specific things about who he is and how we can be saved from our sin and reconciled to him and know the true purpose and meaning of life. You see, the revelation of God's glory in the world is enough to condemn, but the revelation of God's glory in the word is sufficient to save. He goes on to make here six statements about scripture. Notice what David highlights. They're they're titles for scripture. He calls them law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and judgment. He then gives six characteristics. It is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And listen, the, the truth is, is that we could take all afternoon to go through each one of these concepts and ideas and unpack them, and it would be wonderful to do so, but I've only got about an hour and a half to preach this morning, this afternoon. I'm just kidding. I actually think the greater point is actually that we, we see these things against the backdrop of the world. I, and let me frame it like this. It's almost as if we're supposed to grab all of these concepts and understand them, but we're supposed to understand them against the backdrop of this world. Now, I know that you see what's going on in this world. If you watch the news, if you're on social media, if you just simply walk out your door sometimes and look around, one of the things I think you sense and what you feel is that this world often feels so dark and so ominous. It's like this dark, ominous storm cloud that's just kind of hovering over us. And yeah, there's good parts about this world, and there's, you know, there's God's just kind of uh, um, common grace that we see. But, but overall, we, we see this world is filled with, with all kinds of challenges and sin and wickedness and confusion and pain and suffering. We live in a culture that's relativistic, materialistic, hedonistic, and it's filled with compromise and corruption. You know, we look at this world and when we see this world is broken, we often realize and feel that this world is unstable, it feels unsafe, it's filled with immense injustice, it's filled with unbelievable immorality, the filth of sin is rampant, lies and half-truths just run amok, we don't know what to believe, who to believe. Where do you turn in a world like this? When everything feels so topsy-turvy, when it feels we're just getting pounded by the waves, well, the word of the Lord, listen, against that backdrop, the word of the Lord is perfect. It is sure. It is right. It is pure. It is clean. And it is true. You see, we immediately realize as we read through this psalm that the word of God shines forth into the darkness of this world in which we live, and it provides for us everything we need. And in verse 7, he begins to kind of walk through this. And again, we're not going to unpack all of it, but I think the first word there, the law of the Lord, is an important word to understand. When you think of the word law, maybe your mind runs to, you know, the Ten Commandments. Or maybe for some of you, it reads through, you know, reading through the book of Leviticus and all of those crazy laws that the nation of Israel had to put in place. You know, you go to Leviticus, you think of law, and then your devotions die for the rest of the year. But the word that he uses here is the word Torah. And that's a word that is a comprehensive term for the will of God as revealed in the word of God. 
And David is, is saying that, that this, this word of God, from cover to cover, it is perfect and it is complete. It has everything we need. Nothing can be taken from it. Nothing needs to be added to it. It is completely sufficient for doing what specifically? Look at what it says in verse 7. Reviving the soul. Now, some of you grew up maybe reading the King James Version, or some of you maybe still do read the King James Version. You love the, the poetic nature of it. And I actually really appreciate the translation here of this verse in the King James Version. It doesn't say reviving the soul. You want to know which word it uses? Converting the soul. I think that's really important. I think that's the sense of what this means here too, reviving the soul. The idea here is that the word of God actually has the power to radically transform the human soul. It has the power to change you from the inside out. It has the power to come in and completely renovate you. Okay, all of the power of the word of God is targeted, in other words, at the inner person. And that tells us something really important. God is not concerned and God does not appreciate your outward expressions of morality without any inward transformation. And this is really important for some of us to hear because every, every Sunday we walk in through the sanctification doors, we put on the mask and we play the Christian game. We know what to say. We speak great Christianese. And for all intents and purposes, it appears on the outside that we actually know and love God, but inwardly our hearts are far from him. But you see, the word of God has the power to change all of that. It has the power to break you apart on the inside and rebuild you into the man or woman of God that God intends for you to be. revives the soul. Just like the sun that is the source of all life on earth, the word of God is paralleled here with that concept, that idea. The word of God is the source of all spiritual life for the believer. It saves and sanctifies the sinner because it points us to the God of the scriptures. You know, the goal of studying the Bible it isn't simply to, to tick your devotional box for the day. It's not to simply increase in some knowledge so that you can maybe win at Bible trivia. It's not to win an argument or prove a point. The point of studying the word of God is so that you might be radically transformed by having a real, genuine encounter with the true and living God of creation. That's what God wants for you and it's what he wants for me. And that's the Spirit of God. This is the amazing thing about the Word of God. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God. And this is exactly what He does. He wrecks us and rebuilds us. The Word is the transforming power. And now God gives us some more titles. He calls the Word of God the testimonies of God. In other words, they're the divine witness. God giving His own testimony of who He is and, and what He's doing and as such, it is sure, it is stable, it is immovable. It's able to be trusted and followed. He calls the word of God precepts and commandments. They are doctrines and they are absolute truths. These are not, in other words, suggestions for life, but absolute statutes for living life to the fullest, the way God has designed it to be lived. He says they are right. 
The word of God lays out a right path for us. It is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. The word of God teaches us how to navigate life in this dangerous world. And then interestingly, he calls the word of God fear, a word that doesn't seem to really fit with what he's been describing. But it does, actually. You see, this idea of fear speaks to awe and reverence. It speaks to the the idea of worship. The very purpose for which we were created was to, to know God and to worship him. And the scriptures then are a manual for worship for the believer. They teach us how to live all of our life as a living sacrifice unto him. They describe for us the God who is worthy of all worship, and it describes for us the way in which this God requires worship from his people. And so as as believers, we look at the word of God, and, and we read it, and we delight in it, and we pray it like we do at church every Sunday. We speak it into one another's lives. We sing it to one another, and we live it out each and every day as God calls us to. He finally calls them the rules of the Lord, and they are true. They are just decrees that are stable and unchanging. They're exactly what we need. And then notice he he describes for us the effects of the the law of the Lord, the word of God on, on the believer, on all those who have surrendered to God and submitted to him. He uses some verbs here that are really helpful. The effect of the law or the impact of the law of God is seen in that it revives the soul. That's the converting, transforming part. And then next, notice what he says. It makes simple people wise. I think this is important enough for us to just pause and look at carefully. When he says simple people, um, here's what I, I don't want you to think. I don't want you to think about somebody who's intellectually ignorant, but rather the simple person in, in Hebrew describes somebody who is morally deficient. The wise person is the person who is skilled at the art of practical living. They understand what God has designed for life, and they seek to put it into practice. But here, this idea of being simple also carries with it this idea of being open-minded. Now, in our culture, being open-minded is often seen as a virtue, right? You hear people say this all the time. Well, I'm pretty open-minded. Like, what do you got? I, 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 I listen to everybody. I listen to everything. Just, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? I'm open-minded. It, it, it paints this picture. It's kind of like a, like a house. Like, your mind is like a house or per, perhaps like a garage. And the door is wide open. And at any point, anyone with anything can simply come marching in. And here's what you need to understand. This is not a virtue in the Christian life. This is the person who lacks discernment, that can't separate worldly, secular, ungodly ideologies from what is true and right and perfect and beautiful and honoring to God. They just have no filter at all. And what he is saying here is that the word of God becomes that filter through which everything must be sifted and all of the the ugly, secular, ungodly thinking and ideas and practices, they're, they're, they're washed out, they're weeded out so that all that is left for the believer is what is pleasing to God, what is approved by the word of God, and what is ultimately glorifying to God. And Christians, I just want to suggest that we need to get much better at this. 
We, we so often, this is true of all of us, I'm sure, we so often just keep the, the door open to all the worldly ways of thinking. I mean, the amount of, of social media we're exposed to, the amount of just entertainment, you know, pick your streaming device, Netflix, Disney Plus, Prime, like we are just letting the world come at us with all of their power. And if we don't think that that's influencing the way we think and behave and live, we're kidding ourselves. I've used this illustration before, but it's really helpful, so let me just quickly use it again. You know, the the screen time app that pops up on your phone? Tells you, like, instantly convicting, I turned it off, I don't want to see it anymore. It tells you how much time you've been on on the screen, it tells you how much time, um, you know, what what apps you're using, how much time you've been to entertainment and social media and yada, 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 yada. How much time a week do you spend there? What if the God Time app popped up in front of your face every day and was placed beside the Screen Time app? How much time are you spending in the things of the Lord, in the Word of God, in prayer, in meditating on the scriptures, in memorizing the scriptures with the people of God compared to immersing yourself in the things of the world. What's influencing your thinking more? We need to become skilled in practical living and the result of that, listen to this, this is the best part. It's rejoicing the heart. That's what he says. The precepts of the Lord are right, and they're rejoicing the heart. The, the, the byproduct of doing this is not, is not a life that is lacking in any way. Instead, it's a life that's filled with immeasurable joy and satisfaction. I mean, the more time we spend with God, the more we know the joy of God, the more we're refreshed and revived and filled with rest and peace and satisfaction, and God invites us into that. Your joy and satisfaction doesn't come from what you possess or what you accomplish. It doesn't come from your job. It doesn't come certainly from following your heart or being true to yourself. It comes from the word of God known and obeyed. And this is exactly what Jesus says in Luke eleven twenty eight. He says, blessed or, or happy or satisfied or joyful are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And then he moves on. He tells us it's enlightenment to the eyes. Our eyes are are by nature darkened by sin, but through the word of God, we have the eyes of our heart opened. You see, see, as Christians, we may not be the smartest people in the world, but we know more than the smartest person in the world who does not know God. Do you realize that? Through the word of God, we know the truth about God and man. We know the truth about righteousness and sin, the truth about heaven and hell, the truth about what's temporary and eternal. We have been given so much at our fingertips. And the word of God, as a result, it's enduring forever. I love this. There's nothing that it needs. It's not, it's not inadequate. It's not deficient. It's not antiquated. It's not just simply some historical book that was written years and years ago that means nothing for us today. Listen, the heaven and the earth may fade away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It is relevant both now and all the way into eternity. 
And as a result of that, it is righteous altogether. It is true. It is exactly what we need to understand truth and justice and righteousness. And I love what Jesus says in John 17, 17, his high priestly prayer. He said, as he prayed for us, listen, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This book produces comprehensive righteousness. This book is all you need. So church, can we just acknowledge together what a gift this book is to us? What are you looking for in this world? Like joy? You want joy? You want satisfaction? You want peace? You want rest for your weary soul? Run to this book and find that it will provide all that you need because it points you to the one who has it all in himself. It pulls you back into the very glory of God. And once we've looked up and looked down, it forces us next to make it our pursuit to look in and desire his glory. We can now look into the self. And that's what David says in verse 10 and 11. He describes this desire that's now birthed in his soul as he he sees the glory of God in the pages of the scriptures. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the, the honeycomb. And look how practical the word of God is. Moreover, by them your servant is warned and in keeping them there is great reward. He he tells us the the word of God is more to be desired than honey and money. That's my attempt at poetry. Honey represents the provision of what is satisfying and enjoyable and energizing in life. Money represents what is most valuable, what produces security and stability in this life. But in actual fact, all of these things are found truly and fully in God's word. Nothing else can do what it can do. It's our greatest treasure and our greatest pleasure. It is our greatest protector and our greatest provider. The highest joy in life is to know God and that comes only through his word and it is a desire that is birthed in the soul of the person who has had their eyes opened to his glory. You see, whenever we look down, we must also turn and look in. God's word is also our greatest purifier. It's like Isaiah 6, who comes face to face with the glory of God. Isaiah does, and and he says, woe is me, for, for I am ruined, I'm undone, I'm unraveling, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And so David, David knowing this, right, exposed to the glory of God and its beauty and, and desiring the God of glory, look at what he says in verse 12. Well, who, who can discern his errors? Do you see his focus turning inward here? And God, d- declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous, presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Now, it's important to understand here that David is actually giving us a little bit of a pattern um, for how to pursue sanctification in the Christian life. You see, he begins um, with hidden sins. Now, uh, hidden sins are simply that. They're they're sins we're unaware of. Maybe maybe we're just ignorant 
or we're mistaken about what the word of God says and, and we just sin without even realizing it or, or perhaps there's just simply those sins. Maybe we're doing the right things but with the wrong motivation and so it ends up being sin. Either way, David's like, God, I, I don't want any hidden sin, Lord. I mean, forgive all of it. And, and the implication is, God, get rid of it. I want no part of sin. Certainly not presumptuous sin. Presumptuous sin, we know what that is. That's willful sin. That's, that's like, we've all been there. That's like where we see the sin and in the moment we, we know it's sin and we desire the sin more than we desire the glory of God. And we, we don't care about the consequences. We don't care about the problems it may cause, the wreckage. We don't care about the glory of God. We don't care about the damage done to self and others. We simply run towards our sin because that's what we want. And if we do that, I want you to see this. Look at what he says. Let them not have dominion over me. You see, here's the pattern. Look, if you don't care about hidden sins in your life, if you don't care about just being holy and pure and consecrated unto the Lord, it's just a matter of time before you're going to choose to pursue willful, presumptuous sin. It's like, I don't care about sin. I'm just going to go for it. And the more you pursue presumptuous sins, the more you become enslaved by those sins. They have a grip on you. They have dominion over you. They begin to rule your heart, your desires, and your life. And then it's just a matter of time before you walk into what he says here, great transgression. Catastrophic sin. I mean like walking off the cliff and destroying your life's sin. And so he says, like, listen, you need to care deeply about fighting against sin in your life and pursuing holiness. But then, but then if you're like me, you step back from this, and you're like, wait a second, didn't David write this? This is David, right, who, who wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing, leading his people in the time of war, who looked and saw a beautiful woman bathing who wasn't his wife, in fact, was the wife of one of the commanders of his army, who sent his men to go and take her uh, for himself, who slept with her, who got her pregnant, then tried to uh, convince and, and cover up the whole sin, and, and, and then he ended up murdering the woman's husband, and then he covered it up for an entire year. This, this is the guy. That's the guy. And as such, listen, that means he is intimately, intimately aware of how this pattern can unfold in your life. But, but I also want to make you aware of this. He is intimately aware of the grace and mercy of God. He knows the glory of God that is seen in his compassion and kindness. Listen, who can take sinners like you and me, because listen, David's no different than us, amen? Amen. 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 He's no different than us. We, we, we've all, we all, we all, we fall, we stumble in many ways. Some of us are living right now in presumptuous sin. Some of us have made a great shipwreck of our lives. Great tra- Some of us are, are being dominated by sins right now, but here's what David is reminding us. There is one who can make us blameless and innocent. There is one who can wash us white as snow. There is one, listen, who can break the bondage to sin, who can set us free. There is one who sees all that we are and all all that we've done and forgives us and loves us still. Hallelujah. You see, David is ultimately pointing us forward to the greater David. 
King Jesus, his distant relative, who would come from heaven to earth and who would walk faithfully according to the law, who would obey the law of the Lord perfectly in every way, never once failing, always from the heart for the glory of God the Father. And because of his perfection, he could march to a cross of wood and be nailed there as our substitute. He could take our place because of the perfect life he lived. He could pay the full penalty, absorb the full weight of the wrath of God. All of hell descended upon Jesus Christ, all that we deserved. And then three days later, he and he alone would rise from the grave Demonstrating that he has conquered sin and death and Satan so that all who turn and trust in him, listen, can be set free, can be saved, and can be declared innocent before God the Father on the final day. David says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David, like all the word of God from beginning to end, points us to Jesus, who alone can be our rock and who alone can be our redeemer. And the intent of God through his word and through his son is to make us more like him in all of his glory. When you look in, do you desire his glory to be manifested in you? Make that your prayer even today. Like, fall down before his mercy and grace. Repent and let your soul be refreshed and revived. Pray to God, God, show me your glory in the face of Jesus. Pursue it with everything you have. And forget about self-creation. What God provides in Christ is new creation. Forget expressive individualism and being true to yourself. You were made to find your identity in Christ and to be true to him. And forget about your glory. Make it the chief pursuit of your life to know, enjoy, and display God's glory. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another.